Welcome to Dollars and Cents, Wealth, Wisdom, and Well-Being, where we delve into fascinating topics with amazing people, thought leaders, and trailblazers from all walks of life. I'm John Carolyn, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager for Main Street Wealth Management Group. With me today is Mark Lopez, Senior Vice President, Certified Financial Planner, and Olympic Silver Medalist. Great to have you here as always, Mark. Thanks, John. Well, today we're very excited to welcome Steve Clark. Mr. Clark is chairman of Systems International, Inc., and a pioneer in environmental technology. Steve, it's great to have you here to share your insights with us today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, Steve, we'd like to start off our podcast with a little fun bit of trivia relating to the theme of this episode. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. True or false? The first environmental laws were enacted in the 20th century. That's not true. Steve, you are the man. You are correct, sir. You are correct. In fact, environmental laws have been around for a while. During the Great Stink of 1858 in London, the dumping of sewage into the River Thames began to smell so nasty in the summer heat that Parliament had to be evacuated. Ironically, The Metropolitan Commission of Sewers Act of 1848 had allowed the Metropolitan Commission for Sewers to close cesspits around the city in an attempt to clean up, but this simply led people to pollute the river. In 19 days, Parliament passed a further act to build the London sewage system. Go ahead, John. Well, Steve, can you share your journey? And you've lived such a fascinating life. Share your journey with us from where you were fighting oil well fires during the Gulf War to developing this Zeros technology. Talk to us a little bit about what Zeros is. Zeros is an acronym for the Zero Emission Energy Recycling Oxidation System. It actually preceded the Gulf War. The base of my career, I started out with Eliaska Pipeline Services back in the early 70s, building, laying out and building the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. While there, they were drilling oil wells on the North Slope and had an average of five downhole failures per well they drilled, which was unacceptable. And some of the most stringent environmental rules were put in place when they approved the Prudhoe Bay oil find in the building of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. As part of what I did was develop a set of practices and principles that took them from five failures per well to one failure in five wells. Being there firsthand, I got tasked with the cleanup of the environmental disaster that was created after the failures, and I ended up making that a career. Wow. That's incredible. And tell us a little bit about, because I remember when I first started at UBS, and it was at the beginning of the Iraq War. I'm familiar with a company called Boots and Coots, who I believe their job was to help put out oil well fires that they had set off in the Middle East. Tell me a little bit about how you were involved with that. Okay, well, Boots Matthews and Coots Hansen were employees of Redadare. 
And thanks to John Wayne, everybody knew Red Adair. He was what was known as the first hellfighter. As Red aged and let it be known that he was going to retire, Boots and Coots spun off and utilizing their nicknames in the field, they formed Boots and Coots Wild Well Services. I had formed a company called Oil Well Control Services about eight years before they broke away from Red. So I was one of the accepted Hellfighters, and today the only surviving original of the Hellfighters. So I've made a life's work out of responding to crisis of all types, but my expertise was in the containment, the control, and the interdiction of oil well blowouts and fires. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, Steve, thank you for sharing that knowledge. That's pretty cool. I didn't know about any of that until you just mentioned it, so that's good history right there. On another note, we know from our meetings in the past that you have a love for hunting and farming. How has that influenced your work in environmental technology? Well, I was raised on a farm. My dad was forced to immigrate from Tampico, Mexico, to Brownsville, Texas, during the Battle of Tampico in 1914. And they were farmers. So when they moved up to Brownsville, they became farmers. I grew up, and it doesn't take much experience in the farming that you better learn that Mother Nature has got its own agenda. Mm. And if you can't interface with it, you will not be successful. So during the Depression era, my grandmother had a cafe in Matamoros, Mexico, called the Matamoros Cafe. And my father at that time was the market hunter that got the wild game for the menu. (laughs) And so he was an accomplished hunter and... As a kid out of diapers, I followed him everywhere and just acquired the passion for that meat, which is protein, comes best from wild game as opposed from store-bought where they inject it with antibiotics and steroids and all other things. So our primary table fare was wild game that we collected through the year. Okay. That's very interesting. And just to follow up, how did that influence your work in environmental technology? To me, it's all about the environment. I live and walk on grounds that has been dramatically contaminated by industry when techniques and capabilities are there that it doesn't cost any more to do it cleanly than it does to just throw the waste away. It's interesting that just in the few years, it seems like it has become a much bigger topic. And and now they throw around the terminology ESG. And it seems to me that decades before, you were already thinking about that and before it became a popular thing. Tell me a little bit about, going back to your Zeros technology, there must have been many challenges involved in developing that. Tell me a little bit about maybe some significant challenges that you had and how you overcame them, and kind of what you see the Zeros technology going forward. 
Okay. The genesis of the technology is that being a crisis response company, we interdicted oil well failures that several of the large oil companies were drilling on the Santa Barbara Channel in California, in Southern California. And the California residents and subsequently their legislatures passed laws that said certain things could not be done, period, end of sentence. And there was a lightning strike that hit a large 200,000-barrel storage tank of oil on the side of a dirt mountain just north of the Ventura River in Ventura County, California. And this oil started running downhill. And I happened to be there working an oil well blowout for that oil company when they called me in the middle of the night and told me what they had. And we had to interdict the flow of oil and subsequently clean it up. The topography of the area was the steep, very loose, sandy hills that came right down to the beach there on Santa Barbara Channel adjacent to Pacific Coast Highway 1. And to build the highway, they built the highway on a large structure that was like a levee that had drive-unders for vehicles to be able to get into the oil field. And to our benefit, we were able to take and push dirt and close those drive-throughs off and contain the oil in the valley between the road and the mountains, which was, they'd had previous spills that went into the water that was a disaster. And we stopped it before it got into the water. Wow, that is incredible. Had anything like that been done before? Not to my knowledge. The problem was not the stopping it from going into the water. It was cleaning it up because their mandate is it couldn't be there. And that was in the five-county L.A. Basin region, so it was the South Coast Air Quality Board that controlled the events and had to certify the cleanup. They determined that... We couldn't mop it up and take it to a landfill because it would close their landfill. They're only classified landfill, and they couldn't do that. So we were mandated to do an in-situ cleanup. That it means in place. Okay. And the next problem is, is incineration is against the law up there because of the air pollution. So now we had to clean it up without incineration. And they thought about microbes, but there was too much sulfur in the oil and it would kill the microbes. So that would make a massive cesspool. And so I proposed that we build a system that could oxidize, not incinerate, but thermally oxidize the oil into CO2 and water. And then we would capture whatever contaminated soil, sterilize it, and we could apply that back on the land, fertilize it, reconstitute the vegetation. 
and they signed off on this. And the oil company actually funded the construction. I went to Bakersfield, California, which is a known oil field community, and bought an abandoned incinerator since they were outlawed in California and modified it to run on pure oxygen. And so that turned out to be successful to us. Wow. So let me ask you, and just for our listeners, describe the oxidation process and the difference between when you incinerate, which I guess is burning, yes, as opposed to oxidation, which, and I'm asking because I'm not familiar with the topic so much, is that separating something into its individual components? Is that what that is? Basically. In basic terms, the nutrition and the protein you eat doesn't incinerate in your stomach. Sometimes it feels like it if you eat the wrong thing or drink the wrong (laughs) thing, but the nutrients are chemically oxidizing within your system, and your system can absorb it. And if you take that principle externally, incineration is defined by burning a material in ambient air to reduce it to ash. Okay, and because there's almost 80% nitrogen in ambient air to keep the 20% oxygen from self-combusting organic material, the inverse result is that 20% of what you incinerate is left over as ash, which is typically toxic because of the isomers of dioxin that are formed within the burning process. Plus, everything that you've incinerated, you've multiplied by 800% and blown it up a smokestack, where the stuff that gets away from you disperses around and you get those isomers of dioxin floating back to the soil, the CO2, the acid rain, all of that. And that's why incineration is bad. Hmm. Wow. Tell me a little bit about or go into the oxidation process and how that sounds to me way better. The oxidation process only affects the organic material. The inert and inorganic material get a free ride, but because they see such high temperatures, they get sterilized. But if you mix basically one pound of methane, which is an organic material, with two pounds of oxygen, you'll get two pounds of CO2 in one pound of water. And that's the complete chemical reaction. You don't have nitrogen and all these other compounds and then we take the co2 and cryogenically cool it to minus 70 degrees fahrenheit which is what's called the triple point temperatures for co2 it means that nothing will coexist with it it will be a liquid we can capture it as a gas or we can make it into a solid without any added this eight times the nitrogen that's within the system. So our systems can be 10 times smaller 
than an incinerator with an efficiency of about 400% higher efficiency and no emissions. Wow. And you're saying that this technology is available. It's available now. We put it in place. We did our first commercial job in California in 1995. Wow. And we had so much success with the Santa Barbara Channel that the government, through the BRACs, the Base Realignment and Closure Commission, contracted us to clean up the military bases in the San Francisco Bay Area and the L.A. Basin that they were turning over, closing down and turning over to the communities for commercialization. And so we actually cleaned up and turned over about a dozen bases during that, military bases during that time. Wow, that's fascinating. Steve, you've already blown my mind several times already in this podcast. I mean, I'm learning things that I didn't even know existed. But in every field, there are misconceptions. In environmental technology, what misconceptions do you encounter and how does the Zeros technology address these? Well, most people have a misconception of how you can destroy material, particularly waste, organic material that's contaminated with a regulated compound. When you were in first grade, your teacher probably told you that matter cannot be created or destroyed, which means that everything around us is matter and you can't create it or destroy it. Of course, by the time we got to second grade, and some people like me, when I got to the first recess, I forgot that. Well, when we got further in life and we had a need to pull that up out of the database, that came back to mind. And what I found was that in the burning, and everybody refers to burning 99.9% of the people think incineration. Very few people think oxidation. Well, oxidation works because you have a temperature that will make the molecules go stoichiometric, which is a scientific term that they reach a temperature point that they will separate from each other and coexist independently. And at that point, we discovered through research, if you inject oxygen, you can adjust how those molecules reform. If you use ambient air, everything forms off with the nitrogen, which is nitrogen is an acid gas has been recognized for decades as the culprit in burning things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm one of the 99% of people that thought that... Uh, Probably 99.9999%. It's fascinating. Just like Mark had said, my mind is blown. And this technology, you're saying, has been around since the 1990s. So now, without naming names, I've heard a story that you told us, if you don't mind repeating, about a major oil company. Again, we won't name names that was interested in buying your invention or your patents. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, we've had several offers. 
but the offer was quelched because I'm probably a stubborn South Texas boy, and I was told that after I agreed that we would be willing to involve ourselves in the discussions, my next question was, well, how are we going to roll this out and put it so everybody gets benefit? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, how are we going to deliver these? No, we're going to take these patents and we're going to put them in a vault and we're going to pour about 40 tons of concrete on them. They'll never see the light of day. Wow. How can you do that? Well, we go out and their answer to me is they go out and borrow and issue literally billions of dollars of bond debt on technology that is now antiquated and actually against the rules. And if we put this forth and to back up just a little bit, when Mr. Wright up in Dallas was congressman and he was a friend and we went to Washington to talk to him, and he said, you're going to run into a problem because Congress, when they passed the EPA rules, never envisioned the possibility of a zero-emitting technology. We considered only incineration. So we made the capture of the pollution in the nines, in decimal points, never realizing that something would come along better. So they wrote best available demonstrated technology into the environmental laws. And if the big guys that build these plants that are based on incineration technology, the first time they put in a system that is zero emitting that does what the others, those will be forced to be shut down. And it would bankrupt the big companies because they'd have debt to pay back and no way to pay it back. So So it would have stopped the gravy train. And so they wanted to shelve it. That is incredible. uh, You could come to your own conclusion. Sure, sure, sure. But they clearly didn't want the competition. Wow. Unbelievable. Hmm. Well, Steve, what future developments do you see in, in environmental technology? My patent attorney advised me three days ago that our next round of patents will be filed before the first of the year. People that follow the toxic realm, the latest problem is PFAS. PFAS, which is perfluoroalkaline, which is a molecule that was invented back between the 40s and the 60s by DuPont, and it's the ingredient that makes Teflon Teflon. And that molecule is virtually impossible to destroy, and it has now actually situated itself in everything, not just the dishes you cook with, the clothes you wear, the food you eat. It's also contaminated the water supply. And in January, the EPA is going to set, come out with a mandate that four parts per trillion is a threshold that the environmental people will have to 
reach. Now, normally we talk in parts per million, and this stuff is so hot, they're talking not billions, but trillions. Wow. And the thing is, to date, the Zero system is the only demonstrated technology that will do 100% destruction removal efficiency on the PFAS molecule. And all of the modalities of the PFAS, whether it's in soil, sludge, air, or water, we can destroy the molecule. Man, we need this technology to, to go viral. This podcast go viral so everybody knows about it. And let me just add on that too. Question is, do you believe that there's finally enough momentum and attention in humanity and people wanting to clean up our home? Earth, and until we find another Earth, is there enough momentum now that this is going to finally start rolling? Is the snowball going to finally just roll down the hill and get bigger? I don't think so. The concept of that would require a lifestyle change for about 100% of the people on Earth, and they don't do that. Most societies don't have the economic strength to do that. Take the plastics. While plastic has got this water bottle that looks at benign, but if you were to burn that, you would emit chlorine and dioxins and furons and any number of other things into the atmosphere or into the water stream. Now, zeros could do 100% remediation and capture all of those compounds. Actually, they would use that as a fuel to do other work instead of using methane or oil for a heat source, that waste stream right there would be very effective to destroy other toxic material. Wait, hold on. Hold on. So you're telling me your technology not only can clean the environment, but you can use that waste as a source of fuel and energy? We are building a plant right now in Chambers County, Texas, adjacent to the Chambers County landfill. The county judge and county commissions gave us the endorsement about three months ago. And this facility is primarily being built to treat PFAS. But the heat source for that process will be generated by municipal solid waste destined to go in the landfill, which will reduce what goes into a landfill. We'll also be able to pipe into the methane that's being vented out of the landfill, which is a pollutant, and the leachate water that comes out of the landfill we'll be able to pump in as the coolant water, turning that into distilled water. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And my last question for now is you're in the know with all of this stuff. What do you feel is probably the number one source of carbon-free energy in the future? Or is there solar, energy, nuclear, or are we going to stick with fossil fuels for the foreseeable future? We would be wise if we stick with fossil fuels. The capture and remediation of nuclear waste that it takes to generate is massive. While zeros can capture low-grade nuclear material, 
we demonstrated in California for the Navy that one of the big problems in California is in the submarine base. Those submarines, the salt water going through the nuclear reactor generates chlorine and hydrogen sulfide, which is highly corrosive. So they got to repaint the reactors every six months to a year. Well, that paint having metallic particles in it, zinc and chromates and some other non-corrosive type, is in the paint. So if you burn it, you disperse it. If you don't thermally treat it and you end up filling a cave with it, and it's a radiation nightmare, particularly if there's an earthquake, where zeros will concentrate the nuclear isotope will get the hydrocarbon will be oxidized to co2 and water and the metallic isotope can be captured and we have an agreement with pantex in amarillo texas that treats and reconstitutes the nuclear waste we can send it to them and they can blend it into nuclear fuel rods for other nuclear power plants So we've got symbiotic relationships with a lot of other solar energy. It's effective. It's effective. But you and your wife work, and how would a solar panel or a solar still work when you go home at 8 o'clock and turn on the lights and there's no sun to turn power the electricity? You know, and they say, well, let's do batteries. Well, Now you've got an environmental nightmare with the precious metals and the acids that it takes to do the, it it is not where the zeros plant. We've developed a technology instead of heat and steam and running a turbine, we've actually got patents on hydrogen fuel cells, which is a technology that's been around. But we could take the steam that we produce, we have got a patent on cracking that into hydrogen and oxygen and feed the hydrogen into the anode side and the oxygen into the cathode side, and we can make up to 50 megawatts of electricity per cell or per group of cells just by taking the water that we make from our process. Hmm. So... The technologies are out there. The problem we have right now is is that we're bucking so many people that put so much money in other inferior processes. I'm afraid in my lifetime it won't take off and run, but it'll be interfaced in a little at a time. Steve, you, you need to sit down with Elon Musk and tell him all about this. Well, we've tried. Elon Musk runs one of his power lines on my farm in Brownsville going from the power plant out to SpaceX, but he stays a whole lot busier than time would give him to <laughs> sit down with me. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe he'll listen to this podcast. Or somebody will tell him. Yeah. I, I certainly hope so. You know, it sounds to me, at least you're really at the forefront of trying to, to solve a lot of these problems, and there's no quick fix. This is going to be something that, that I think that generations to come, like children, grandchildren, are probably going to be dealing with these same issues. Here's a question for you. So for people that are inspired by your work and what you're doing, what advice would you give to 
an aspiring environmental innovator, the next generation of Steve Clark's. If you've got a dream, stay with it. If you can offer something, don't be embarrassed about putting it out there and developing it. One of the things today, and our company does crisis response, and I know for a fact that there was a flood come through the southwest part of Houston several years ago, and it flooded houses, and all that material was picked up by the responders and taken out and piled up in big piles, and it's still there. Zeros can use all of that, or the bulk of all of it is fuel, and recycle the rest of it, but it takes somebody with the interest in making that go away. Wow. Hmm. Well, the new mayor of Houston needs to hear this podcast, too. All right. Steve, so at the end of every podcast, we have a segment called Favorites. It's where you can share something with the listeners that you find to be really interesting. It could be anything. So before we wrap up, do you have any book, movie, or personal recommendation to share with our listeners? I'm not sure that I do. I read as much as I can from a number of topics. At this point in my life, I read heavily about developments in agriculture because the sustainability of our society will come out of the agricultural practices, and more people need to be involved in that. Well, can you give us one title then regarding agriculture? I really, uh, just a movie. Of, what about a movie? I'm pressing you here, Steve. Yeah, this you is are. a tough one. <laughs> you you caught I mean, me you flat. Could t- you could talk about how technology? about wor- words of words of wisdom? How about words of wisdom? Well, words of wisdom would be the universities and the schools. I have found out the hard way are not the end all, be all. Of knowledge. I've been involved with Texas A&M for a number of years. I was fortunate enough that my business partner, William McKenzie, was the chairman of the board there for 28 years, and he interfaced me with the Texas Water Resources Institute and Dr. C. Allen Jones, and that relationship now is 23, almost 24 years strong, and working within academia where we can show new techniques and new processes that they may not have thought possible or viable is one of the better ways to do it. I don't focus in on any particular writing because I find what I know today creates flaws in so much of what the old generation has thought yeah and i think that it's best that our new guys that are interested actually reach out and make a truth of their own as to what is good keep on innovating you know it wasn't that long ago really in human history that people thought that the world was flat and that the earth was the center of the solar system you gotta keep on learning keep on innovating yes Well, Steve, thanks for joining us today on Dollars and Cents. Your insights and stories have been just fascinating. We want to thank everyone who's tuning in, and we'll be back for another engaging conversation soon. Steve, again, thank you so much. And until next time, this is Dollars and Cents, your beacon for wealth, wisdom, and well-being.
This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC.